to um, today's seminar. I'm really delighted to have Professor Anand Menon, who is Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College and also Director of UK and Changing Europe, which has been helping the British public, navi public navigate Brexit for what seems like a very long time now. In, um, in September, we had a, a joint, con in October, we had a joint conference on with the UK and in Changing Europe on Brexit and the media. And I was looking through my notes at the time and what we were talking about then is how Brexit as an, as an event has shaken trust in journalism, led to this online mudslinging, came, um, ended up with kind of quite established journalists like Adam Bolton of Sky News, facing attacks he'd never faced in his career before, a polarization um, of the public and also a kind of lack of reporting on how this really affects people's lives and it consists of that often there's too much of focus on the winners and losers in Westminster and not enough of a focus on on how this plays out in society you know some eight months later we're in a massively different situation where a lot of those issues are intensified to a level we'd never have dreamed possible and we'll come to that in a moment but Anand I just wanted to start off really by asking you first of all saying welcome thanks very much Thank for coming in and um, just tell us where we are with Brexit at the moment, which is, you know, just kind of quick recap from from the referendum and the debate and the idea that we will still be leaving the European Union in December. You know, what's you know, what what's going on? Well, I think the first thing to say is that we have left the European Union. And I say that not least because there was a piece in the Daily Express today saying we will leave in December, which I thought was interesting. We're no longer a member state of the European Union. Uh, it took a long time to get to this point, and effectively it took the election of Boris Johnson with his majority of 80. Uh, the country is still divided. Uh, opinion polling still shows that that Leave Remain divide is there as it has been since the referendum and arguably before. So we haven't, there hasn't been a coming together of the British people. It's just via the vagaries of our electoral system, the Conservatives managed to muster a majority which has voted to approve the withdrawal agreement and take us out. As everything to do with Brexit, it's not quite as simple as that, because while we've left, we are now parked in this really weird holding uh, pattern, which is called transition. And what transition is, is a way of keeping Britain's economic relationship with the European Union exactly as it was when we were a member state, except that Britain no longer has a seat at the table, it no longer has a vote on laws, it no longer has a judge on the court. So we're not a member state, but in economic terms, it's pretty much as if we were. Okay, and um, what what what's the government got to kind of consider now in what happens next? What happens with December? Well, I think the first thing to say is the government, I think, is spending remarkably little time thinking about this because it's got bigger fish to fry in the shape, not just of dealing with the pandemic, but and I suspect this will be a bigger priority soon, dealing with the economic fallout of lockdown. Uh, so. One of, the, one of the things that has happened is while the Brexit process is continuing, while we head towards this deadline of the end of June for extending transition, while the negotiations are continuing, lots of people in government who would normally have been working on Brexit have been moved away to deal with the pandemic. So there are far fewer people in the civil service dealing with Brexit now than there were at the end of last year. Uh, and that, that matters because there's still quite a high possibility that we leave the European Union or we leave transition at the end of the year without a deal. In which case, a lot of the preparations for no deal that we should have been doing will not have been done. So the government is, is continuing to say we're doing these negotiations, but without the degree of effort that there was before the pandemic struck. 
is that true on the other side as well? Because of course the European Union countries are also facing the pandemic. Is there, I, it, I know, and I know the no deal Brexit or any kind of transition, end of transition won't affect them in the same way, but is there a sense that attention is focused elsewhere from their, that side as well? Absolutely. When it comes to the practical arrangements for dealing with a no deal in December, yeah, everyone's taken their eye off the ball slightly. As you say, they have less adjustment to do than we do. But nevertheless, places like Calais or Zeebrugge or Rotterdam, it has to be said, for the Dutch in particular, they've done much of the work already. So they're, they're slightly ahead of the curve. The one way in which it doesn't affect the European Union, of course, is that their negotiating team is a European Commission negotiating team. And that team remains in place unchanged and as focused on Brexit as it ever was because that's all they do. So what would be the impact do you think of having, what might be the impact of the various scenarios if, they're, if we don't extend the transition period or having a no deal, you know, where, where, how do you see this playing out? Well there is a debate going on about the transition period uh, and just to explain the withdrawal agreement that was approved by both sides says there is a transition period that lasts until the end of December this year. If both sides agree before the end of June, that transition period can be extended by either one or two years. So we have the option, if we want, of maintaining the status quo with the European Union for up to two years after the end of this year. Now, the government has said very publicly and repeatedly it has no intention of asking for an extension to transition. But there is a debate around this now. Uh, and the debate is very linked to COVID-19 in the sense that some people are saying, look, given the fact that we can't prepare for Brexit at the end of the year because of COVID, it makes sense to extend. Given the fact that COVID has impacted massively on the economy, there is very little point adding another hit to the economy in the form of a no-deal Brexit on top of that. Uh, and actually, if there's one set of circumstances in which even the most ardent Brexiter might accept a force majeure argument, i.e. look, I didn't want to do this, but we were overtaken by events, this is the time isn't it? Because you can't argue that this pandemic is a bolt out of the blue, has completely upended everything. So there are those people who are saying because of COVID, we have to extend. The flip side of that is there are some people in government who say, well, firstly, some people in government who say precisely because of the COVID economic impact, this is a great time to do Brexit because no one will notice the additional impact of Brexit. That is to say, going forward, it will be impossible to pinpoint what the impact of a no-deal Brexit was because the, the impact of COVID will be so much bigger in the short term. Yeah. Uh, there are also those who say we need to get out because Britain needs to be free to sign its own trade deals, to do its own regulations, so we can adapt to the post-COVID world more effectively and more quickly than if we were in. And finally, there's a political argument with people saying Boris Johnson's USP is the Prime Minister who delivers on what he said. If he turns around, having said so often that he will not extend transition and decides to extend transition, the danger for him is that he will be open to criticism of being just another one of those politicians who says stuff but doesn't deliver on it and is willing to ignore the British people. Now, I'm not convinced that that's a particularly plausible argument, but it's one that is taken very, very seriously in government at the moment. I mean, the government now is kind of full of the cabinet is made up of people who back who, you know, very strong Brexit supporters. And mm -hmm. this has kind of played out in, you know, how effective is this cabinet at, you know, how yep. experienced is it? Do you think there's any room in this in this scenario for kind of changing track and saying, you know, well, grabbing every excuse you can to, to, to postpone? 
The first thing I would say is this isn't a cabinet that wields collective cabinet responsibility. This is a cabinet that is dominated by the prime minister. This cabinet, I'm pretty convinced, will do what the prime minister tells them to do, because, of course, he is the person who got them their majority, who kept them their seats in December of last year. That being said, there's an interesting coalition of backbench conservative MPs forming at the moment, who which happens to overlap quite a lot with some of the hardest hard Brexiters, people like Steve Baker, Owen Patterson, Ian Duncan Smith, who are now calling for a very fast end to lockdown. Yeah. And so it crosses my mind that actually refusing to end transition might be the price that Boris Johnson pays to be able to hold the line on keeping lockdown going for longer because it's the same people on the other side of the debate. Say that again slowly. Sorry. Well, there is there is a small group of Conservative MPs, yeah. very noisy small group yeah. of Conservative MPs, who happen to be those who don't want transition to be extended as well. Yeah. Who are arguing for a very rapid end to lockdown. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder whether if the Prime Minister is serious about keeping lockdown going longer than they would like, the concession he, he the would give them is to say, but look, we'll get transition out of the way. So you're not going to lose both, you'll lose one. Got you. Okay. Well, that's... That'd be interesting. Thank you. Just want to say to everybody on this call, uh, as you've noticed, this is a kind of conversation and a chat. Please do type in questions into the chat function as we go along, and I'll keep an eye on them and ask as as we as we keep going. And we have we're here for an hour, uh, maximum. Can we just talk a little bit about the going back to kind of the media and mm -hmm. do you? Um, Let's talk to the media and Brexit reporting for now. Do you get the sense, I mean, it's obviously fallen off the, the top news page, you know, top of the headlines because yep. of the pandemic, but have you seen any kind of other differences in the way the, the British media in particular is, is approaching Brexit reporting at the moment? Uh, well, it's off page one is the obvious yeah. difference. Uh, but no, not really. I mean, you have that same, I think Britain, going back, I think the media had quite a good referendum in many ways, because all the newspapers tried to explain what was going on. Yes, there were in a, amongst that stuff, there were horrendous op-ed articles that were basically untrue. But actually, all the newspapers, especially all the quality newspapers on both sides of the divide, did actually have long chunks of text trying to explain what is sovereignty, what is EU regulation, what is the single market. Uh, now, I think it is Brexit is far more niche in the newspapers. Uh, for instance, there hasn't been that I have seen, except in the usual suspects, which are the papers that really want us to extend transition, any real serious debate about this issue around transition, nor has there been any serious discussion about the economic impacts of the kind of Brexit we're going to get, whether we get a deal or don't get a deal. Uh, and I think that we need more of that. It's too easy, I think, to say, well, coronavirus dominates everything, because, of course, there are economists who will say the coronavirus economic impact is relatively short-lived. We come out of lockdown and, the, and a lot of that pent-up demand will be unleashed. And actually what we'll find is you have a couple of months of very, very low output, followed by output getting pretty much back to its previous levels if you can achieve that V-shaped recovery. The Brexit economic impact is long-term. Uh, so whilst it won't be as spectacular as the figures we'll see coming out now, it will last into the future and in cumulative terms will be very, very significant. Okay, thank you. Um, and internationally, if you look at kind of Britain's standing in the European Union and the, the kind of the, the death rates and the, you know, the lack of 
what is seen as effective management of this crisis. Do you think this is affecting Britain's position in negotiations or, and, and will it continue to? I mean, there's several things there. I mean, firstly, I'm reluctant to comment on death rates and the like simply because of it is hard to compare. I mean, eventually we will be comparing because we will have data that is more reliable from all countries. And at the moment, the indications are that we might not come out of those comparisons very well. But for the moment, I don't think that's an issue. I don't think national governments are, intent, are interested particularly in playing the international comparison game because there's too many priorities at home. Brexit certainly affected the way the government has approached things uh, in the sense that, for instance, there was a reluctance to take part in joint EU procurement schemes for ventilators and protective equipment. And that was political. That was it. You know, it doesn't look good for a government that has taken us out of the European Union, trumpeting the fact that we can do more and do it better by ourselves to turn around and in its next breath say, oh, but we're going to work with the European Union because we want to provide ventilators. So there was a political subtext to that. I mean, one of, it was very interesting today, if you pick up a copy of The Times, that Theresa May has written an article in there saying we shouldn't let, you know, political prejudice get in the way of the need for uh, collaboration with our allies. I mean, some people will think it's ironic that she has penned that piece. Uh, but it seemed to me to be a bit of a veiled criticism of the Boris Johnson government attitude towards the European Union. So, yeah. It is affecting things, but I think the main thing that's affecting how we're seen in the European Union at the moment is our approach to the negotiations. I cannot stress enough how irritated the European Union is getting with the way in which Britain is approaching the negotiations. Firstly, because they think we're not approaching them seriously. That is yeah. to say, the British government isn't acting as if it wants a, uh, an agreement by December, because if it was, it would address the EU's priorities, which are things like fisheries. We've simply ignored them. On that. The second thing is we are bound by the withdrawal agreement we've, we've signed off to put in place the measures necessary to implement the Northern Ireland Protocol, which involves checks on goods going between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. We are very, very behind schedule on that. And there are people in Brussels saying that basically the British are negotiating in bad faith because they're not taking their obligations seriously. There is a growing sense of irritation on the EU side, I think. I don't know if you've frozen, Mira, or I've left I've, you. No, I think we've just frozen. I think Mira's just frozen for a second. Uh, just give her a couple of minutes to come back on. Okay. Do you want me to look at these questions? Uh, if you're willing to go through and answer the questions yourself on the chat, then absolutely. Well, I mean, I can do. start till Mira gets back on. I mean, there's a question from Kate Bartlett. Can everyone see the questions? Yes. Because I, th I think I think you're absolutely right, Kate, in the sense that. Yes, you can, you can cover up Brexit economic impacts by putting them down to COVID. You can say, well, I mean, there are two things. You can, you can cover up the Brexit economic impact. And the second thing to say is it's not wholly silly to think, look, we're having to make this massive economic adjustment to deal with COVID anyway. Wouldn't it be sensible to make businesses do the other adjustment, i.e. Brexit at the same time? Everyone's going to, you know... Businesses and trade will not be like they were when we start coming out of lockdown. Uh, we won't be able to have so many people in a room together. Transport will be different. So if we're adapting to that, that might be a great time to adapt to coming out of the single market and the customs union as well. There's an element of sense to that. But of course, 
ending transition at the end of the year will have an impact on the British economy. And there's a serious question about whether you want to add that to the COVID impact. Thank you. Sorry, I lost you there. So apologies if I'm asking um, questions. You have to asked. turn off halfway through me. It's fine. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't really know. ran downstairs and switched my told my son to get off the computer, basically. <laughs> um, a question from Richard Kaplan, which is what happens if the UK is deemed not to have met its obligations under the withdrawal agreement, for example, with the Northern Ireland by the end of the transition period? Hi, Richard. Well, I mean, what could happen is that the European Union simply say in June, when we're meant to have a sort of stock take of the negotiations, look, if you're not going to take this seriously, then the negotiations are suspended. Uh, so it is perfectly feasible that it's the EU that pulls the plug. The problem then, of course, is there's all sorts of calculations about the blame game. Uh, I was talking to a lawyer friend the other day who says that actually he thinks the very fact that the prime minister keeps on insisting there won't be checks between Northern Ireland and Great Britain is a breach of faith, because that is clearly and unambiguously not what the agreement says. Uh, so... In the last resort, the EU can stop the negotiations and they can take us to court over it. This is a legal document. This is a treaty that both sides have approved. Thank you. Um, do you think they will? Uh, I think they'll be reluctant to because, of course, their, 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 their preference is to have the Northern Ireland Protocol implemented. Yeah. Uh, and actually, if you turn this into a standoff, uh, that doesn't just inflame politics in Britain, it also inflames politics in the province, and that's the last thing anyone wants to do. No, um, question from Shruti, which is, um, which is kind of the, the uber question. What do you think of the probable, probable reasons why Brexit took place with 52% of the electorate voting to withdraw from the European Union? I mean, that's Adam's entire career in one question. I mean, there's, you know, we can go through the reasons, which are, firstly, the British were always lukewarm about membership. Public opinion was never as strong in support of membership as in other member states for a variety of reasons. But that was always the case. Uh, <coughs> secondly, I think there are contingent factors that the referendum took place while the migration crisis was going on. So we were bombarded with pictures of migrants coming into Europe. And the Leaf side, Nigel Farage in particular, were able to sell that as something we would be exposed to. The other contingency is, of course, the Eurozone crisis. When we weren't watching pictures of migrants, we were watching pictures of unemployed people in Greece. And the Leaf side, again, managed to say, you know, the reason for British membership of the European Union was always economic. It was never political in the way it is for other member states. And so the, Europe, the Eurozone economy failing or looking like it was failing gave Leave a very, very strong argument. And I think the other thing is, uh, the more short-term reason, is that during the campaign itself, the Leave campaign, they didn't convince people. I mean, one of the interesting things about the referendum campaign is that virtually no one changed their mind uh, on whether they supported Leave or Remain, but Leave were very, very good in persuading their supporters to go out and vote. So in the referendum of 2016, 2.8 million people voted who could have voted in the general election the year before but hadn't. So they were motivated to go out and vote in this referendum, whereas they weren't voting in national elections. And that was down to the efforts of the Leave campaign. Thank you for that question. Um, there's one that was um, asked from Tom Westgarth, which I don't think you've answered yet, which is, do you think that the pandemic will shift the kind of alignments that we seek in negotiations? Will there be increased demands for sharing data, monitoring healthcare? Uh, 
I think the reports coming from the negotiations say that in private, the British government is extremely keen to maintain access to EU databases now. Uh, it's not something they're willing to say in public. But when we say databases, yes, databases on public health clearly are important because of the pandemic, but there are also uh, data sharing or when it comes to businesses, which is obviously absolutely fundamental to cross-border business. And there's data sharing when it comes to police, organized crime, fighting terrorism and so on. As things stand, if we leave the European if we leave transition without a deal at the end of the year, the UK immediately loses access to all those databases. Uh, even if we negotiate a deal with the European Union, it is quite hard to see how we maintain access as we have it now, given that the government has said we will not be under the authority of the European Court of Justice. And the European Court of Justice is the ultimate arbiter for data in the European Union because so many member states, not least Germany, have such marked sensitivities when it comes to data privacy. Yeah, interesting change. And um, what what do you think was going to be the impact of a hard Brexit or kind of a no deal Brexit on, on EU research funding? I mean, the UK universities are now kind of facing a perfect storm of all the disruption <coughs> from COVID-19 and then possibly a kind of fall up, fall up in EU funding as well. It kind of depends what you mean by a hard exit. I mean, you could say that the deal that Boris Johnson wants is a hard exit, but the British government has said it wants to negotiate some participation in some EU programmes. So it might be that in the jargon we pay to play that is to say that we pay some money into the eu in order to be able to participate in research networks this will be very different to when we were a member state because when the uk was a member state it always got more out of these pots than it paid in because our universities are quite good at that sort of thing if we leave without a deal we immediately fall out of all those schemes uh, and we would have to try and negotiate going forward when things had calmed down to reaccess them <coughs> I think Mira may have frozen again. <laughs> okay. Uh, Are you happy to go through the questions yeah, yeah. in the um, chat? So lovely access to the single market, the idea that London's loss is Paris or Frankfurt or Amsterdam's gain. Yes, to an extent. Uh, I think, you know, you see this with life sciences and Amsterdam, the Dutch have got the European medical agency. Dutch universities are quite aggressively saying, you know, if you've got research council grants in the United Kingdom, why don't you bring them here in the life sciences that they want to create a life sciences hub. Uh, equally, Paris and Frankfurt are trying to attract some parts of the city of London. Interestingly enough, in Frankfurt, they don't want to attract too much because they don't want a financial services sector that is as dominant as the city is in the UK. But there are limits. Uh, yes, tr being within the EU single market is important, but not important enough to drag every business out. And my hunch has always been there'll be two phases of this negotiation. The first phase, the, the member states would play hardball. They'll say no access to the single market and they would try and extract the businesses they could from the United Kingdom. But there will come a point where they've extracted what they can and other businesses aren't going where they've got to turn their minds to how do we continue to work with companies and with the British government in these areas at that point, I think, and that might not happen this year, but in the future, we're going to have to think of creative ways of allowing us to participate in things joint projects in the life sciences, uh, research projects with European universities. But at the moment, yes, to an extent, some of those major centres are going to benefit from Britain leaving the single market. Okay, okay. I mean, 
going a question from from Jarko in Finland and um, the EU has been criticized for lack of solidarity and um, in coping with the coronavirus and do you think this might affect British attitudes to the, towards the EU especially amongst Remainers and certainly about the kind of the how Italy felt abandoned at the early stages uh, no not I mean no not particularly I mean remember insofar as people made the case for us to remain in the European Union, very, very few people were making the case that we should be in the Euro. So it's a slightly different situation for the United Kingdom. Leavers, of course, are jumping on this. If you pick up the Spectator, you'll always find an article saying the EU is falling apart. Look how they're screwing Italy. So it's reinforcing anti-EU stereotypes in this country. The flip side of that is, I think, ironically, the fact that member states are arguing so viciously amongst themselves over corona recovery programs and things like that makes it more likely they will stay united on brexit because i think the logic there is look we've got all these first order issues about which we're fighting we better just keep a united front on this second order issue of brexit because we can't afford to be squabbling on that as well so i don't think the logic that the eu is divided and so we can split them is going to work at all in the brexit negotiations no. okay good um and it i'm just trying to see what um, under a scenario where there's no deal and no extension at the end of the year, what do you think will happen then? I mean, under the May administration's widespread assumption the UK would be scrabbling to ensure a deal as quickly as possible. <coughs> um, so could a no deal scenario endure right up to the next election, next general election, which at that point would be about four years away? Well, I mean, a couple of things to bear in mind. Firstly, this no deal is different to that no deal. That is to say, no deal under Theresa May didn't just mean no trade deal. It meant no withdrawal agreement. And withdrawal agreement mattered because it resolved the Northern Ireland border, which is of great importance to all sides. It resolved the question of how much money we owe the European Union, which was a priority to the European Union. And it resolved the, the issue of citizens' rights. Because if we'd left with no withdrawal agreement, the rights of UK citizens in the EU and EU citizens here would have been opaque and that would apply to millions of people and would have been profoundly damaging. So no deal now is less significant than no deal then, except in economic terms where it's exactly the same. But I think, yes, if we leave with no deal at the end of this year, there is very little prospect, I think, under this government of us going back to the negotiating table to try and negotiate something. I think we will just have to adapt to the shock of trading with the European Union without any preferential arrangements in place. And that will be very damaging. It will affect all parts of the British economy very, very profoundly. But as we were discussing before, it might be that the hope of the government is what would the adjustments going on to the pandemic at the same time, that looks less bad than if it had happened without the pandemic at the same time. Okay, thank you. Can you hear me? Yep. I think you might have frozen again. Oh dear, I think Mira's having some um, connection problems. Um, there's a question from Diego Baronzo um, at the bottom of the chat. Did you maybe want to start from, from there and work the way up? Yeah, okay. The expectation, well, there were two expectations, two completely contradictory expectations about Brexit and the EU. One camp was saying Brexit, you know, when the Brits are out of the way, bloody trouble causing Britain, Brit uh, European integration will speed up uh, because they won't be there to veto everything. The flip side of that was when Britain leaves the European Union, everyone will look at Britain and think, wow, we'd like a piece of that. And so the European Union would break apart. And I think both of those extremes are just profoundly wrong. Uh, the 
integration will speed up argument is wrong because the structural problems that bedevil the European Union are not anything to do with the United Kingdom. If you think about the big issues that divide the EU, they are the the values divide between East and West, what's happening in Poland and Hungary and how people like Macron are uh, reacting. There is the migration crisis, which whilst numbers are down at the moment, we've still got a boat that's being held off the coast of Malta because the Maltese want other member states to take the refugees. That crisis is still stimmering. And we have the ongoing Eurozone crisis that has been inflamed again by the coronavirus. And I think in all those crises, what you see is that A, the UK wasn't the cause of the problem in the first place, and B, the UK wasn't the member state that was vetoing a solution to them. So those problems remain. So I think the EU will just muddle along in the way it has been even without the UK. Why won't the EU fall apart without us? Well, I suppose the first answer is because they've seen how hard it is now to leave the European Union. And if you think about it, most EU member states are small countries. Small countries don't leave big clubs as a rule. And most EU member states are in the euro. And if you think Brexit was a nightmare, try doing Brexit whilst getting back a national currency at the same time, and you'd really be in for fun. So, and I think also the other fact is, all other member states feel a sense of attachment to European integration that we in Britain just don't. I talked earlier about the fact that our attachment to the EU is far less marked than in other member states. And I think that comes from the fact that for every other member state of the European Union, European integration is essentially an economic project that is being pursued for largely political objectives. So for the initial six, why do you pull coal and steel? To prevent war. For the countries of Southern Europe, why do you want to join? To enshrine democracy after dictatorship. For the countries of Eastern Europe, why do you like the European Union? Because it marks your return to Europe from Soviet hegemony. And that means that there's a political element, a political narrative to membership in other member states that there never was here. We joined the European Union as an economic project for economic objectives. And so the glue that held us in was far less sticky than in other member states, which is why I don't think we'll see emulation. Sorry, I went on for ages then, answering a question that no one asked me. But that's really good. It was the flip side of the question that was asked. <laughs> no, that's really good. Thank you. Um, so a question from uh, Richard Allen, who's our visiting fellow for this year. How do you think Ursula von der Leyen and the new commission are doing so far? Well, it's a bad time to judge, isn't it, in a way? I don't think they made a... I mean, I think there have been a lot of missteps. Uh, I think the Commission was late to react. I think the Commission made its first statement about COVID on the day that Italy entered full lockdown. Uh, I think, you know, she... she this is not an Ursula van der Leyen thing, but I mean, the, the, the Commission's PR and comms operation has always been rubbish, as far as I can see. And they got it wrong with their plan to end lockdown, about to be released and then being vetoed by member states. It's not been a great start. That being said, it is very hard to see how any president of the European Commission could effectively deal with the structural problems that bedevil relations between member states. Uh, I think a real test of von der Leyen will be coming out of this, the degree to which she salvages that very ambitious program that she laid out at the start of her tenure, and particularly the Green, De the Green New Deal. I think that is going to be one point of cleavage across politics in the developed world now, with there's going to be one camp saying post-pandemic we can't afford all these niceties about worrying about the environment, and the other side are going to be saying we have to stick to our environmental 
targets and whether she manages to persuade member states, particularly in the east of the European Union, to continue with the Green New Deal, I think will be the real first acid test. That's a, that's a really interesting point. And I'm going to go to some of the questions about the media now, but sticking with that point, you know, is there something the media can do to right now to kind of, you, 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 led, you know, you've kind of alluded to the fact that the, the shock of COVID-19 is going to be relatively short, but the shock of Brexit or, you know, the impact of Brexit is going to be very long term. Same with the climate, climate mm. change debate. Is, do you feel that the media could be better in kind of holding these things up at the same time, you know, kind of making these points that we need to look beyond, beyond the current pandemic of what we do next? I mean, in Britain, it would be nice if we didn't have whole newspapers dedicated to climate change denial, sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, think the, I don't think the media is the problem here. I mean, the media is a very easy target. I don't, uh, the problem here is political time horizons, is if you have a problem that lasts longer than a parliamentary or presidential term, it's a problem that parliaments and presidents aren't going to devote a lot of time to, uh, because actually the focus is necessarily on the next election. And why would you take a decision that imposes costs in this parliament so that we benefit in 20 years time when that might actively hurt your electoral chances? So I think, you know, one of the striking features about the world we live in at the moment is whether it's pandemics, whether it's aging populations, whether it's the challenge of AI, whether it's the challenge of climate, we confront a number of very long term problems. And particularly in this country, I would say, our governance system is very ill-adapted to deal with long-term problems. I say particularly in this country because we have this adversarial two-party system where actually one party comes in and makes a virtue of reversing what the last party did. In countries where they have a tradition of left-right coalitions governing, so politics is more consensual, I think it is easier to handle long-term political problems. Thank you. I mean, it's going leading to the question of um, Daniela Pinheiro, a fellow from Brazil, which is having its own particular COVID-19 crisis. What do you think the main media mistake was when covering Brexit? Again, this is something we kind of covered at the conference. Is it false equivalence, journalist arrogance? And adding, I would just want to add to that, you know, what, what lessons can be learned from that? I'm not sure it was arrogance. I think, you know, journalists like everyone live in bubbles. Uh, and I think amongst journalists, as amongst sort of other people, uh, people in the sort of London southeastern bubble didn't see it coming because a lot of them just had never met a lever. I mean, I've been to many sort of uh, news organisation conferences subsequent to the referendum saying we need to get some of these people in and employed. It's a very difficult thing, isn't it? I mean, one of the defining features of the Brexit vote is it pitted people with a university degree against people without a university degree. Uh, so what, on what form of merit do you appoint to newsrooms to get that fair spread of opinions? It's difficult. And I think because Brexit was a values division in British life, that, that phenomenon of people existing in a bubble is particularly marked. So journalists, you know, it, you know, we used to laugh about it. I come from the north of England and uh, my school friends were saying, you know, for about three months after the referendum you couldn't move in Yorkshire for bumping into BPC journalists who were sort of up there trying to figure out you know what is a what is this northerner of which you speak and why do they have such strange views on things and it was sort of it was slightly uh, shutting the stable door after the horse had bolted but I mean one of the good things that has come out of the referendum and there are many good things that have come out of the referendum one of the good things that have come out of the referendum is I don't think we'll make that same mistake again we're far better now at reporting, I think, from all over the country and for taking the whole country seriously 
<coughs> than we were beforehand. Uh, false equivalence was obviously a problem. I got annoyed by the way in which the BBC would say, <coughs> here's an economist who wants to leave, here's an economist who wants to remain, without pointing out that, you know, there was a survey that showed, I think, 98% of professional economists were in favour of remaining, or put it another way, 98% of professional economists were of the view that leaving would cause economic damage to the United Kingdom. So I think you need to point that out, that actually you can't just have one for, one against as if the world is evenly divided. Amongst professional economists, the world wasn't. So I think that issue of balance uh, that the BBC was obsessed with was at times uh, a hindrance. And I think that is something they have now very definitely um, re rethought and yeah. kind of strategy on that. Um, staying with the BBC, the question on, on Paddy, which is, um, can you com comment on current BBC coverage of Brexit? BBC News has gained audiences and kudos generally from COVID reporting, but the human interest element of the pandemic is more compelling material than other negotiation, than trade negotiations. And do you think the BBC should be doing more on Brexit right now? I mean, several things from that. Firstly, I've been struck by the relative absence of human interest stuff from the pandemic in the sense that, yeah, the odd family comes up. But today, for instance, there was a report by uh, uh, Food Poverty Association about the fact that, you know, the use of food banks has gone up by about 80 odd percent from the same time last year. And I've been very struck during the news coverage of this crisis by the lack of coverage of what's happening to people who've lost their jobs, who can't work, who have no income. Uh, so in a sense, I'm not sure that the, 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 the sort of personal interest stuff is being done as well as it could be. Uh, on Brexit, the other thing I would say, and certainly linked to that is, we seem to have had, I don't know whether it's just me, I don't tend to watch that much TV news as a rule, but my sense was we had far more in the way of harrowing pictures from Italian hospitals than we ever had from British hospitals. On the, on the media, which I think is interesting. And I'm not saying that there's some great conspiracy here. It just strikes me as, as something worth noting. On Brexit, do you know, in general, I think the BBC did all right on Brexit, not brilliantly, but I think across the range of their coverage, and if you don't focus on the flagship programmes like Today and Newsnight that did suffer from these problems of balance, stations like Five Live, programmes like BBC Breakfast actually did so, a really good job of covering uh, Brexit. I think BBC fact checkers, which came in, you know, reality check, performed a useful function. Uh, it's very hard, I think, for broadcasters to find space for anything apart from the pandemic at the moment. I would like to see them doing more because we have that end of June deadline creeping up on us and it's almost going to creep up on us without us noticing if we're not careful. So I think there should be more discussion of it. But my sense over the last week is that actually more people are, start, are starting to uh, talk about it now. I've lost the question, it's gone off my screen, so I hope I've answered all of it. Uh, yeah, th that's it, thank you. Um, the next question, which is on, um, which is just below, it's on, on the experts question. After we've had enough of experts, expertise has been rehabil rehabilitated by the government in the context of COVID, but it doesn't seem to have led to any end of the deafness of economic expertise on the economic costs of leaving with no deal. Why? Well, let me say several things. Firstly, I don't think it was ever the case that we had had enough of experts. And I think to be fair to him, Michael Gove was slightly misquoted and slightly quoted out of context because what he was talking about actually was IMF, World Bank, OECD and things like that rather than experts in general. But I'm, it's never been my experience. And we spent much of the period before and after the referendum doing public events 
that people express that view. What I think has always been the case is that governments have tended to use expertise instrumentally. That is to say, governments will adopt experts who they agree with, uh, or they'll adopt experts for cover. And I think that's very clearly what's going on with COVID now is this isn't a love of expertise. This is simply that the experts are a pretty nice shield between government and the people. And they can say, you know, McGove the other day said in Parliament, there was no lack of PPE. We simply got the amount of PPE that the experts told us to get. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me that we're, we're willing to forefront expertise on COVID, but not on the economics because they don't like what the experts are saying on the economics. One of the interesting things that's changed actually, and it's quite amusing during the COVID thing, is even those Brexiters who used to deny that there would be any economic ill effects of Brexit are now saying, well, yeah, there might be a bit of churn, as they call it, but actually it'll be nothing compared to the hit we're having with COVID, so we might as well just go ahead and do it. So there's a sort of tacit acceptance now of what the economic models said. I think it is a disgrace that the government has not published impact assessments of what its Brexit deal would mean for the British economy. I think doing policy in that way is really not a very good idea at all. I mean, the, if you're a British company right now, you're kind of working blind on so many levels. You have no idea what the strategy is with lockdown. You have no idea what kind of strategies of your staff, and then you have no idea what the strategy is with Brexit. It's kind of an impossible space. In yeah, but I think what, they, what you do know if you're a company, remember, you've got to differentiate between those companies that have got the bandwidth to think about these things and those small companies that don't. But I think what big companies have finally come to realise is their interests are not going to dominate the government's thinking. Uh, I mean, we really are living in a period where the politics trumps the economics. And we see that in the approach to Brexit, where, as Michael Gove said in Parliament, I think yesterday, if we can't get a tariff-free deal with the European Union without signing up to level playing field, we'll have tariffs because the fundamental priority for this government is the political imperative of not being under EU laws, rather than the economic imperative of keeping trade going. And that same approach colours their approach to immigration as well. Uh, gone are the days where aggregate economic impact was the be all and end all when it came to making political decisions. That's a really interesting, really gloomy point. I'm not sure if you've answered Olivia Burgess's question, so I don't think you have, but it was about vote leave, um, having broken electoral law and work with Cambridge Analytica. Do you think the outcome should have been disregarded? And, um, and the second question, which kind of is that, do you think leaving the EU will lead to a united Ireland? Uh, no, I don't think the outcome should have been disregarded. I do think, though, that we need, that we, we, we have analogue laws for a digital age in this country when it comes to the role of the internet, when it comes to what you can do with data, when it comes to the role of online advertising in elections. We really need to catch up. And one of the victims of Brexit was, I lost count of the number of parliamentary inquiries and the number of uh, recommendations they came up with for dealing with this during the period between 2016 and 2020. I think there were over 100 at the last count recommendations. We have to start acting on those things quickly, otherwise we leave our democracy open to subversion online. Uh, do I think it'll lead to a United Ireland? It might. I don't know. Uh, I think there's a long way to go before that happens, but certainly the political equilibrium in Northern Ireland has been profoundly shaken up by the events of the last few years. And insofar as there is a direction of travel, it is one that might... That, I mean, you see the polls changing. Uh, 
over the course of Brexit towards greater support for a united Ireland. Thank you. Um, a question from, um, sorry, Ms. Brown, you know, Queen Jiang Gao. Um, do you think Brexit is going to affect the ch relationship between the UK and the other world powers, such as US and particularly China? Yes, in the sense that there is a political imperative now for us to sign a trade deal with the United States yeah. just to show that we can. In that sense, in a, in a curious way, we might be more dependent on the US now than we were before because this government has to deliver on its promises to providers with trade deals, not as they've claimed trade deals that will compensate for what's happening with the European Union, because they won't, but almost trade deals for their own sake. On China, I don't think Brexit is going to shape and, and affect our attitudes towards China going forward, but I think the pandemic absolutely certainly is. And you already see, for instance, in Parliament that the Conservatives have set up this China research group uh, remember, the European Research Group was massively influential in both getting the referendum and shaping the outcome of Brexit. We now have this China Research Group of MPs who are a lot more hawkish about China than the, the current government's position, and their stated intention is to put pressure on the government over things like trade, over things like self-sufficiency, but also over things like infrastructure and Huawei's role in 5G. So China will be a point of contestation within the governing party over the next months and years. Thank you. Thanks, Anand. Um, I just want to go back to the point you made about um, the, the voting public and the fact that there were 2.8 million people who voted in mm -hmm. the referendum who didn't vote in the, in the previous election. Going forward, what do you think is going to happen to this electoral base? Will they stay engaged? And what topics do you think are going to motivate them at the polling booths they do <laughs> god knows uh i mean one of the one of the other good things to come out of the referendum was if you look at the indicators in the hansard annual democratic audit engagement with politics has gone up yeah. uh that has to be a good thing uh, whether we maintain that or not, I don't know. I mean, it depends what our politics looks like, whether politics is, is seen as delivering on what people want. Uh, it's, it's impossible to say what issues there are going to be. I mean, climate will obviously be an issue for some parts of the population. The economy is going to dominate what we've seen, uh, you know, when we do these salience indicators that Ipsos Mori do these monthly trackers of the issues that people think are most important. Well, the economy is back. Brexit has disappeared, immigration has disappeared. So the issues that people are interested in are changing very, very rapidly. I think it is far, far too early to make any predictions or even vague guesses about the future at the moment. We're in mid-crisis. I think by the time we get to autumn uh, and we start looking at where public opinion then, there are some really interesting discussions to be had about where politics goes and what the debates will be. Maybe we can get together again in the autumn and talk about that because it was a really good interesting discussions to be had about how this has shaped our politics going forward. What we don't know, for instance, is, you know, it, w will both the Labour and Conservative Party be pro-big state by the time we get to water? I mean, the Conservatives have created a massive state for us with the furlough scheme and things like that. There is pushback in some parts of the Conservative Party now saying, well, actually, to get the economy growing again, what we need to do is scrap regulations coming out of this. Those sorts of debates will be interesting, but I just I think at the moment it's too soon to say. It's just such a weird time in our politics and things are effectively on hold. It is a very weird time. Um, I'm just going to round off with some questions on populism, which is something that's kind of mm -hmm. overshadowed both Brexit and COVID-19, which is um, 
one from Yucca, which is for the Conservatives, Brexit was seen as a way to kill right wing populism in a way with, you know, kind of neutering UKIP and the Brexit party. Do, what signs do you see in Europe of this strategy? Is there a chance, do you think, that European traditional Conservatives will adopt the same strategy? That's the first question. And then I'll... Uh, not as effectively, partly because of electoral systems, I would say. Uh, partly for a variety of reasons that, that, that parties, if you look at Italy, for instance, there's a strong regional bias to some parties, which makes it very hard to be incorporated. You're absolutely right about the Conservatives. I've just seen the British election study data that suggests that 82% of people who voted Conservative in December last year voted Leave. So the, the Conservatives have hoovered up uh, the Leave vote. I don't think it's going to happen in the same way. I mean, if you think back to... Uh, French politics, you know, when Sarkozy was interior minister, he tried to basically use some of the language being deployed by the Front National, but the French people basically thought, well, if we've got the Front National, and that's what we think, we might as well vote for them. So it's not been as effective there. Our electoral system makes it a lot easier to kill off challenger parties in this way by adopting some of their language. Okay, and then um, do you think, the next question, which is probably the last question um, from Othon Anastaskis, do you think that the recent importance of low paid migrants and the contribution to the, uh, to the economy is going to change the approach of the government towards the migration criteria? And, and I just want to add to that, do you think it's, it's changing a perception of migration at all? I mean, we have this, but we also have Nigel Farage standing there looking out, shouting at boats. Breaking the law. Yeah, breaking uh, the law. Hi, Othon. Uh, well, several bits of that. Firstly, since the referendum, there has been a marked shift in British public attitudes towards immigration. That is to say, uh, public attitudes have become more favourable to immigration and public attitudes are more, uh, public opinion is more likely to recognise the cultural and economic benefits that immigration brings. And that's been a steady trend since the referendum. So it's already happening and we're not entirely sure why it was happening. It might be because they thought it had been solved by Brexit. It might be for, it might be because they saw stories about EU nurses or doctors or whatever. When it comes to COVID, yes, on the one hand, I think, uh, you know, the fact that the prime minister is name checking people when he comes out of hospital, that you've had all this coverage of immigrants working on the front line will have an impact. Whether going forward this country becomes more open or less open, I think, is an open question because the counter tendency is we can't be, we can't be reliant on the Chinese for stuff. The Chinese centers this virus. I mean, there is a strong countercurrent, which is to say we need to be more self-reliant. We've heard President Macron saying we should be self-reliant for food going forward. We can't, be, we can't be reliant on others for things. You hear the same rhetoric coming out of the United States. So I suspect this country going forward it is too early to say whether it means a change in the immigration laws almost certainly not because the government has released its guidelines on immigration policy and they are exactly the same as they were always intended to be and i think there's quite a subtle comms operation going on from this government whereby someone will say something liberal and at the same time someone will do something less liberal and that way you can appeal to your base whilst also appearing to the, appealing to the broader public at the same time. And it's one of the problems with these sort of unattributed sources in number 10 that can give the impression of something without actually committing anyone to it. So that was a long and waffly answer to say I'm not entirely sure what the direction of travel will be going forward, actually. And it depends a lot on the narrative, the dominant narrative that comes out of the COVID, whether it was we imported this from abroad or whether it was we could never have coped with it without the people from abroad. I'm not entirely certain yet.
I mean, actually, having said that's the last question, I, I do have one follow-on point, which is you mentioned the unnamed sources and the anonymous mm -hmm. sourcing. And again, during the time of the Brexit conference in October, this was, I remember your colleague Jill Rutter wrote a very good piece saying, this yeah. is really irresponsible. It's undermining credibility of journalists. It's allowing politicians to get away with putting policies and statements out there without being, yeah. you know, having any kind of being pushed back, pushed back at all. Do you think this is still happening to the same extent? And yes. journalists stop accept so journalists haven't stopped accepting anonymous briefings. It absolutely is still, uh, and journalists haven't stopped accepting anonymous briefings. Uh, and one of the issues now is it's almost worse because we're in a period where, I mean, journalists have a difficult job. I'm just talking about this country because I don't know about other countries. On the one hand, there is unparalleled appetite for news. On the other hand, revenues are falling because advertising is falling. So there's a, there's a problem. And at the same time, we have this massive national crisis and everyone expects lots of news, whereas actually not much is happening. So because of that, I think there is a lot of reporting of rumour and of gossip and of so-and-so said, so said this and is hinting that. They're just doing it to fill pages because people are clicking on it. And I do think it is a problematic. It is massively problematic because it allows politicians to get away with starting rumours and then denying all responsibility for it. Well, it seems in particular with the lockdown, there's a kind of trend to float ideas yeah. by putting them out in the media and then kind of watch the reaction and then decide yeah. on that reaction whether to announce them yeah. or not. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, it is profoundly unhealthy. Okay, thank you. Anna, there are millions of questions, but I think in Sorry. the name of my broadband and I think, um, thank you so much for your time. Actually, one which would be a perfect kind of, which is, um, what do you think of the last, from Nina Nikolic, what do you think of the three top risks in the Brexit negotiations in the next three, two months? Uh, the greatest risk is that the talks break down, both sides walk away from the negotiating table in a sense, in a spirit of animosity and mutual recrimination that makes it very hard not only to think about resuming talks at some later date, but actually gets in the way of cooperation that is necessary over things like health, over things like terrorism, over things like security. It bleeds into our cooperation in institutions like NATO and basically sours our political relations with European states for months, if not years to come. That's why I think a breakdown in the negotiations is potentially very damaging. Okay, thanks very much, Anand. and we'll keep- my pleasure, um, nice to see you. Really good to see you. Thanks for putting up my internet connection and hopefully <laughs> yes. we do this face Go to face. Tell your child off. Exactly. It worked <laughs> out. Thanks so much and um, hopefully see you soon. Yeah. Take care. Take care. Thanks everyone for participating as well. Thank you.